Good morning, noon or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I am your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This is the 23rd episode of The Shift. It's being recorded on the 7th of January, 2018. If you like what you're listening to, please think about becoming a patron of the program. That's patreon.com backslash The Shift. To find out more, go to my Facebook page at The Shift with Doug McKenty. I'm on Twitter at McKenty. Uh, you can find me on the web at theshiftnow.com, and just recently, you can subscribe to me on iTunes at The Shift with Doug McKenty. So my guest on the show today is martial artist Louis Martin, author of The True Believers, the story of his time training in Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu. At first, Louis believed he had hit the jackpot. Seibukan, literally translated as House of Correct Martial Arts, appeared to be an exceptional style created by a world-class martial artist who had trained extensively in Japan and held multiple black belts in authentic Japanese art forms, styles that could easily be traced back to the lineage of the samurai warriors. Not only did the Seibukan system contain seven levels with literally hundreds of martial techniques and multiple weapons forms, but it also offered more esoteric knowledge including pressure points, a comprehensive five-element system, and it even boasted the use of chi or internal energy in the more advanced levels of the program. It seemed to be the complete package for self-defense and self-development. Eventually, however, something changed. The social hierarchy became stratified as those closest to the leader were given more influence over other students in the system. The self-development aspects became a jargon, almost unintelligible to the outside world, and anyone looking outside the system to improve their martial arts skills risked condemnation by those that Louis Martin now calls the true believers. Thank you, Louie, for being on the program, and thank you so much for helping to make the shift. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Doug. Thanks. I just I just got goosebumps when you said, you know, author Louis Martin. That's still such a trip to hear you. <laughs> you know, I knew I wanted to write a book, but I never really thought like, oh, people will think that I'm an author now. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, like we were talking before the show, there has been so little written about this topic, which it gets into the kind of fanaticism or cult-like behavior that can occur in the martial arts. So I really appreciate that you have written this book. Uh, I wanted to say a couple things before we get started. One, just for full disclosure, is that I have participated in this system. I know if you've listened to enough of these shows, maybe you know that I do Tai Chi. I've done Tai Chi for quite a while, but I do have a black belt in Seibukan, and I actually eventually left the system for a lot of the reasons that Louis mentions in the book, so we'll get into that later. Um, but this is a real important aspect. I mean, I do this program, The Shift, because I'm trying to open people's minds to different possibilities. You know, people are, are all following different spiritual paths, and of course, as you, you know, try to open your mind, try to learn different things, following different paths, you can easily fall into this trap. And I think the question of what is a cult is actually really important because a lot of times people think that they must be these crazy satanic cults or Charlie Manson type situations, but there are also, well, there's actually a lot of, uh, of gradations of this kind of behavior. And so uh, I really thought it was cool that you looked into it you know, from your experience in Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu and just kind of delving into it, uh, writing this book. And so just to start off, would you like to explain to everyone why you did choose to write this book? Yeah, um, I started writing it right after, you know, everything definitively ended and I had kind of left the system and I had talked to my teacher and, and confronted him and, and shared some of the things that I felt or that I was upset about. And I, you know, I talked with my wife, Sarah, a lot 
And we just, you know, after a while, we were kind of just laughing about it and being like, that was crazy. This was a crazy, you know, seven years. At that point, it was longer than seven years. And I started off just thinking, you know, this is a good story. And this is kind of a unique story. You mentioned this is something that in martial arts circles, we talk about this stuff all the time, Mm -hmm. but no one's really written about it yet. And that's kind of how it started, just like, this is a a story worth writing down. But then, you know, as I wrote it, it was, you know, it was a big part of my healing process, and it kind of forced me to think about a lot of stuff that I tried not to think about for a long time. And then I started, you know, feeling like it was was important for more than just an entertainment thing, that this was something that... um, I, I maybe owed it to my younger self, and I owed it to uh, other students, and it became something that, you know, I wanted to do right by uh, the people that, that I had trained with, and part of that was I, I never call Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu a cult in the book, mm-hmm. I and noticed that, was that. A, it was a conscious uh, decision I made because um, I think that this is a nuanced thing, and... Uh, John Green has a great quote that I like where he says, the truth tends to resist simplicity. And I really believe that, that um, when people hear the word cult, they have a very simplistic reaction, which is good guys versus bad guys, predators versus victims. And I think that everyone involved uh, deserved a little bit more nuance than that. So I said, you know, I'm going to take a look at this with a nuanced look and and also, part of that started with me and saying, well, well, you know, I need to take my share of responsibility because there was times I was a, a victim of everything, but there were times that I, I benefited from, uh, you know, all the teachings tremendously. And, and even parts where I knew that I was victimized, like I was okay with it at some point. And it's a complicated relationship. Um, and I didn't want to immediately come out and call it a cult because um, one, I, I don't believe it is necessarily, and I think some people might, and that's fine. I think there's arguments to be made there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when I think of like, you know, some of the the real serious cults that have, you know, people have died or something like that, I, I always think like, nah, this wasn't on that level. But you know, things were trending in a certain direction, and and that is true. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because I have a psychologist friend at one point, and I was discussing with her. Uh, you know, and she certainly wouldn't think when I when I discussed with her like what Sebukan was like, or there are, there are other movements that some people call cults and other people. She was really like, and this is a person that does therapy for you know abuse victims, um, hmm. and she was like, look, I don't like to call these outlier groups cults. Uh, she didn't really seem to think that you know uh, Sebukan could be classified in that way. It's not. It's not. Uh, there, there just wasn't that level of abuse going on. You know, not not sexual abuse or mind control per se, um, but God, it is a fine line to me. I mean, I I do also know that you know, in my circle of friends that I was training with, uh, it it got confusing and it was challenging and it was difficult to even talk about you know some of the feelings that I had and with some of those that were closer to me, it did affect our friendship, you know, and not not in a healthy way. So. Um, it's just, it's interesting to know where that line is. I actually, well, just in terms of like doing the show and where I'm at with it now is that I, I like to try to avoid that stuff, you know? (laughs) I mean, anything that kind of starts to look like that, I, you know, my relationship with my Tai Chi teacher, for instance, is that we're friends. He's constantly telling me, 
uh, to be humble, you know, not to think too much of myself. And he works on his own humility. And, you know, I call him Franz. He doesn't get a special name or anything. And mm-hmm. we just work out together, you know, and we basically work out together as equals, except that he can beat me all the time, which is why I, you know, I go to him to learn about martial arts. But, um, you know, it's just a totally different vibe. There, There's none of that kind of hierarchy going on. And, and you know, I recommend that to people that are trying to follow uh, a path or, or looking, you know, to, to learn uh, more about themselves and, and work on something that, that can help them, you know, develop themselves like a martial arts path can do. Um, yeah, I think as a teacher, it, um, it takes a, a very specific kind of effort to, um, to repel and shrug off the, the greatness that your students will try to force upon you. Mm. And it's, uh, it's not easy to do, and I, I, I wonder if it's possible to do it indefinitely. I think that you know the, the better you become, the more students you acquire, and then their students begin to acquire students. It's just inevitable that people will... Um, will praise you and then that praise will turn into you know a sort of reverence and then stories get told about you that are maybe exaggerated and then some stories could get told about you that are untrue and before you know it you have people you know bowing to you and and just telling you how great you are and that you changed their life and you know I was a instructor um, for uh, a few years in in Sebukan and I taught private lessons and classes and and um I, I started to see a little a little bit of that, um, and it was small. It was you know people said, "Hey, you had a great class," and then someone said, "Man, I'm I'm going through some stuff in in my life, and you said something that really helped me in class." And I was in my head like, "Sure, yeah, I, d- I had no idea, but that's great." Yeah. And then you know, but then someone's like, "But it's like you knew. It's like you knew what I was going through." And then I was, <laughs> and I'm like, "I really didn't. I had no idea." Yeah. But I could totally see that you know maybe if I wanted to, I could have been like, "Yeah, I d- I, I I felt that." You know, I felt what you were going through, and, and that's why I said this, and it's right. a slippery slope, man. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, what actually attracted me, you know, I'm do- and I'm doing a soft-style martial art. We do a lot of, of meditation as part of the practice, but, um, you know, I like the martial arts because you do, like, I know that my teacher is better than me. I, I've seen people that take, you know, you can be studying, uh, you know, a Hindu Hinduism or Zen meditation, and you've got a teacher that's teaching you meditation, but you can't, how can you compare you know, whereas in martial arts, you know when the teacher is better than you, <laughs> or you should. I mean, you know, if you're really training with someone, and then you give them the respect, hopefully, that, that they're due because they are better than you. Um, and and then, yeah, I know, like you're saying, it, it can become a slippery slope. It depends on the teacher, and hopefully the teacher is, is holding on to that humility uh, just as much as they're trying to teach it to you. I, I know in my, in my Tai Chi style, that's the way that it works. Um, so you went on to study Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and you've mentioned in the book that uh, even when you went down to Los Angeles and you went to the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu school down there, you started to feel the same way, that a lot of the students sort of uh, had put the Gracies on, on this pedestal as well. I mean, you, I think you mentioned that probably on purpose just to say, hey, this happens a lot in martial arts. So what was your experience there? Yeah, and... Part of that was me and something I probably have to live with forever now, which is I, I might be a little bit oversensitive to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was it was a big revelation for me because I was so deeply enthralled in in Sebukon for years, and it was my whole life, and it was it be, became a part of my identity, you know. And I, I I thought you know this is who I am, and when I would introduce myself to people, and you know most people say oh this is my name, and uh, you know, and I work at a grocery store. 
and me, I'd be like, oh, this is my name, and I do martial arts. Like, that's my thing. And then when I started to get out of Seibukan, you know, slowly because I started, you know, realizing that maybe didn't have all the answers, um, I found uh, this system called Grace Jiu-Jitsu, and it, it really spoke to me, and uh, it really helped me get, get out of, you know, this, this way of thinking that was probably harmful for me and, and others. But even though I loved my new identity as someone that did uh, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, I, I realized over time, I said, you know, I, I'm repeating the whole thing again. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've fallen into a new group, and I, I basically changed uniforms, but I'm just a, another person's true believer now. And, um, and you know, I, I still um, train with uh, groups affiliated with, uh, with Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, and, and it's, a, it's a great school with good people, and it's it's not nearly on the level of Seibukan. Um, but I'll tell you, man, it's, you know, the, the kids that come in that they're, you know, they're newer white and blue belts, um, you know, they're, they have kind of that same level of, uh, of obsession and fanaticism. They, they idolize, you know, some of the, the, the Gracies in the family. And, um, and, you know, they're a little bit like Seibukan people and they don't want to know or have anything to do with anything that's not, their little tribe of people, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and again, maybe I'm a little oversensitive to it, but you know, once I I saw that about myself, and I said, man, I've just kind of jumped ship to a to a new group, but it's the same me. I have the same patterns. That was a big wake up call for me, and it's like, all right, I need to start thinking about what is it about me that's drawing me to these um, these intense groups, you know. Right. Interesting. And do you find now that you've been able to bring to your martial arts practice something that's a little more individualizing, I guess is the word? Or, you know, I mean, it's inevitable that you're going to end up training with a group of people. I mean, even like, I mean, I'm kind of fortunate. My teacher, we've got like five other people. It's a very... Uh, it's just not a very organized situation. You know, it's, it's extremely informal the way that we train, but if you get much bigger than that, then there's going to have to be some kind of formality and some kind of group thinking. So how do you, you know, what is it? I guess there's maybe a yin yang. You've got to find a balance here when you're looking to train in martial arts. Yeah. Um, I think a big part of that is honestly just age, you know, you grow up and, and you start to figure it out. And, uh, you know, you get burned once or twice, I got burned once or twice, and then you don't get burned anymore because, <laughs> you know, you're a man now. Um, yeah. A lot of the, you know, so the gym I train in now, um, one of the key differences is the age. You know, the, the people I train with now are, um, you know, our age varies. You know, there's some kids that are in their 20s, and there's some people like me, I'm in my early 30s. Um, but there's a higher maturity level. Most of them have, you know, careers and, and not just jobs, but they have careers. You know, they have stuff that's at stake in the real world. Um, they have, you know, wives and kids. And, you know, in my gym now, um, we're very large. I mean, we have, uh, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 students every night. Wow. But um, I've thought about that a lot, Doug. Uh, like, what is, what is, what are the factors that make the school I'm at now different? Um and there's a couple things. One, um, we're not very formal. Uh, you know, we, we're not uniform. We don't dress uniformly. You know, we can wear basically whatever we want as far as a gi. Um, we don't really organize by rank much. We tend to organize by skill. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, purple belts will beat blue belts, uh, you know. 
seven out of ten times, but every now and then a blue belt will beat a purple. Right. And and every now and then you might tap out uh, a black belt, and maybe you're only a purple belt, and it's rare, but you know sometimes the other students see that and they're like, oh, okay, this this black belt, they're they're just a guy too. They can they have to struggle and they can get beat, and that really adds to the human aspect. You know, in Sabukan, um, we would never see uh. You know, well, one there was no sparring, so right. we never would really see an instructor in any real danger. You know, so and they would never let them put themselves in a position. I mean, if I walked in to uh, to a, a Sabukan school right now and I went up to an instructor and said, "Hey, let's uh, let's spar, whatever you know, whatever kind of rule set you want, like let's we'll we'll establish that and then let's go." You know, I'm 99% sure they would be like, "No, I, I don't want to do that." And of course they would say, well, you know, it's because I would kill you and my techniques are so deadly <laughs> right. that, you know, I'm, I'm actually doing you a favor. Um, but let's be honest, like they wouldn't want to be seen losing. Um, yeah. Whereas me, I wouldn't care because I lose all the time and it's not a big <laughs> deal. I get tapped out all the time. I get humiliated sometimes. You know, sometimes white belts beat me. It, you know, it's, it's not very common. But yeah, you know, sometimes a guy off the street, I train with a lot of military guys, a lot of uh, Marines, active duty Marines. They're just big old Kentucky fried chicken eating guys. And uh, right. yeah, they'll smash me and it's just part of life. You know, we're, we're all human. Well, you know, that that actually says a lot. I, I think the belt system, because the way that we train in Tai Chi, there is no belt system. You know, we're not even doing that. My teacher one time, I made some comment like I've been doing this for 15 years and he just looked at me. He said, "Hey, Doug. He said, you you are where you're at. You know, <laughs> like mm. don't don't pretend like you're beyond anything or even the amount of time that you studied this. You know, it's like you're you are where you're at, and that's important. Like the, the belts do have a tendency, I think, to make people and convince people that they're somehow better than they are. And it's like, look, you can memorize a lot of techniques, but in a fight, you know that that really doesn't." It really doesn't matter. Anyone can always slip one in and you can get whacked and then that's the end of it, you know? And it's, I don't know, the, that was something that you mentioned in the book, the, the belt factory of Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu where, and, and everything was ranked according to the hierarchy of the rank, of the ranking system. And because of the lack of any real kind of contact sparring, um, you know, there was no real way to test anyone. So it just sort of, to me, eventually, it was how many techniques have you memorized? Well, okay, um, but I don't know. You know, in the in the in an actual conflict, that's where I was getting to that point about being humbled. I mean, you you it's important, I think, when you're training martial arts to be humbled. Like you're saying, you lose all the time. I mean, I'm the same way. When I in in Tai Chi, we do push hands, which is a a kind of a sensitivity training. It's not like full contact sparring, but you're still being tested in terms of how well you can hold your center. So it's it's just a different approach. It's the soft style approach to martial arts versus the hard style. But nonetheless, I still, you know, I get beat all the time. My teacher is actually, you know, his point of view, my teacher is teaching me to learn to be humble to defeat because if you don't learn how to retreat, then you really are screwed. You know, if somebody's got you, you need to know how to take a step back, you know, and still maintain your center is, is the point that I'm, that I'm learning in Tai Chi. Um, pretending like, you know, you can hold your own when you can't is the most dangerous position to be in, in a real conflict. So, um, totally, man. Yeah. And I, uh, you mentioned a couple things that were really interesting to me. Um, 
you know, one, I remember being, uh, I was a Godon, so that's a fifth degree black belt. Mm-hmm. And when you're a Godon, you're considered a Shihan, which is, you know, you're a senior student, basically. Um, you know, people see you as like one of the, the top students. And I remember, you know, privately in my head being like, I really have no idea if, if I can fight, if I can hold my own. You know, I mean, I, I, I like you said, I, I know a lot of moves, but I right. really am not sure. And now... Um, I know the answer, which is like, I'm better than average and, you know, worse than others. So, (laughs) you know, I don't want to pretend like now I have this super unmovable sense of confidence, but it is, I have a really realistic sense of what I can do now. You know, I'm 125 pounds, so, um, you know, I'm always going to have to work a little bit harder. Uh, and then, man, what was the other thing you said, um, yeah, it was something about the belt machine uh, that right. you that you talked about, and uh, yeah, I also remember being a, a high-ranking, you know, black belt, and maybe some kid would come in off off the street into the the Sabukan dojo, um, and you know, there's this process of kind of conditioning that um, students in some traditional martial arts, including this one, went through, which is, uh, you know, we teach you how to attack us. And we mm-hmm. say, okay, there's a, you know, we t- in Seibukan, we taught like the very Japanese style of attack, which is either grab my wrists um, or grab both my wrists or something, or, you know, come in with this kind of straight karate style chest punch, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and once students learn how to attack you the, the right way, then the magic starts happening and you can do some really cool stuff. But there's always this moment when there's a brand new student coming in and they're not attacking you the right way. They're attacking you like an intuitive person would. And I remember sometimes, you know, guys just throwing crazy looping left hooks at me. And I'd be like, man, if I don't teach this guy how to, how to attack me right, I'm about to get my ass kicked here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was interesting. And that was some of the, the problems that I had with Sabukon too, was that it turns into a kind of a dance. I mean, yeah, you can learn, you know, they call it the Ukimi. Uh, you know, the, the, the person that's doing the punching and then you do the technique against them and you're kind of going back and forth. But if you're just memorizing how to do the technique, you're not really dealing with, um, the randomness of an actual fight situation. Um, and so, you know, you just have to, I don't know, you got to have your head in the game when you're choosing what martial art to follow and what, you know, what path you want to follow. And you've got to be able to make decisions for yourself. I, I kind of wanted to start, oh, and I also wanted to say I really like what you're saying. I think there is a lot about becoming more mature in the martial arts, too. I mean, it's easy to, as a younger person studying these things, to, I, you know, following the martial arts path is just such a crazy way to go. I mean, you're dealing with your authority issues one way or the other. You could be too anti-authority to get the good stuff from your teacher, or you could be too passive and just be doing whatever your teacher is saying and not questioning or being critical enough. Uh, you have to find that balance, and it takes it takes some some time and some effort and some real serious thought on your own part to kind of grow beyond that and just, I don't know, just become grounded enough to really work on who you are and, and you know, as a, as, a, as a martial artist and as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and everybody does, and that's the other thing I did want to say too, is just that I have respect for everyone that follows their, you know, is following the path. At least you're walking the path, you know, wherever you are with it, um, you're learning and you're doing your thing. And if you're happy doing what you're doing, then that's great for you. So, you know, it's not that we want to be overly critical about anyone's situation. 
Uh, although I think that you're onto something when you talk about, you know, worried about being victimized or being deceived, especially when you're spending a lot of money uh, or dedicating a lot of time. Like you were saying, I think a big change seemed to happen to you when you met uh, who became your future wife and you started to have a family or, a, you know, something outside of Sabacon that was part of a real life. Like, And you mentioned the careers of the guys in your Brazilian jiu-jitsu school. I mean, once you have something else going on, then it starts to be like, okay, you know, I need to find a balance here and I can't just fully dedicate to this system of martial arts or whatever it is. Um, but will you go back? Well, if you want to comment on that, that'd be great. Yeah, you know, the career thing was a big deal for me because um i feel like one of the one of the bad things about sebukan was that in a lot of ways students were encouraged to turn away from potential careers um and just keep doing sebukan yeah. and and it was there was this feeling like well martial arts could be your career you know you could you could start a dojo and and you could get to a, a super high rank um and you know and you could be rich um Right. And I think it was one students got you know a, a very unrealistic view of of the the grinds that consists of having a martial arts school. I mean that's not easy money there. I mean you you, right. you got to go to every class and you know it it's easy to look at someone like our teacher Concho, um, who by the time we met him had been doing it for twenty years and he had five six seven instructors that could teach any class. I mean at that point you know it was it was passive income for him, but. What we don't see is the struggle in the beginning, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of students were, you know, convinced that, and and they had probably convinced themselves too. So it was it was, you know, co-created, I guess. But yeah, they just thought that it was going to be easy and they were going to make a lot of money. And, you know, I remember having some talks with some of those students and being like, you know, why don't you think really carefully about this? I mean, there were kids that you know were going to like drop out of college. Yeah. And uh and I said, you know, just just think carefully like isn't isn't the tools of Sebukan supposed to help you go out in the world and thrive and be, you know, to to get a, a better relationship with your girlfriend or wife or to help advance your career, but you're talking about giving up all those things just so you can what? Like serve Sebukan? Like isn't it supposed to be helping you to go right. get something outside of it instead of just you becoming a tool to keep growing the system? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I don't know. You know, I guess what the way I'm thinking about it is in terms of of like red flags that come into my mind when I see a martial arts school and some of the things like you're talking. Um, we, we talk a little bit about the the belt factory that's happening when you start seeing people spending a lot of money. I mean, I, I pay my teacher a monthly fee, you know, and there's nothing else. It's not like I'm buying stuff from him or I'm having to spend more and more money to advance in his system or anything like that. It's, you know, and if you start to get into a situation where you're spending a lot of money, um, but also like you're talking about the pressure to remain inclusive and be always working for the system instead of the mm -hmm. system working for you. That, that feels like, you know, like maybe another red flag that you need to be thinking like your martial arts practice needs to be something that helps you in the rest of your life, not something that becomes your, your life. And if you are, yeah. you know, if you want to become an instructor, that's fine. But even, I mean, my teacher here, you know, he has another job. It's not like a full-time gig. He's got like five or six serious students. He makes a little extra cash on the side. But I mean, we live in Mendocino County. There's just not even enough people out here. Mm. The people at the Sabucon Dojo here, 
were talking about wanting to really expand their school and move up to the, you know, the larger city, which is Fort Bragg, which has got like 10,000 people in it. And, you know, they were thinking that they, you know, two or three of these instructors, one of the things you mentioned in the book is that eventually it's like everybody's a fifth or sixth or seventh degree black belt. You, you actually don't, you get top heavy because they're giving so many black belts away, <laughs> or at least, you know, fairly quickly they're, they're producing a lot of black belts. It gets so top heavy that where do these, you know, sixth or seventh degree black belt people go uh, after they're kind of, they've gone through the system and they're encouraged then, like you were talking about, to start their own dojos. But we live in Mendocino County. So what happens with the three people or so that are at that high level that are all thinking that they can make a living, you know, doing this here? Like you're not, you'd have to attract hundreds of students and we just don't have that you know, that foundation here, that kind of base, it just wasn't happening. But it was amazing how much the system uh, really, you know, pushed for that. More dojos, open up more dojos all over the place, constantly trying to expand. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, this is something, again, I want to have integrity and say that um, I'm not sure how intentional this was, uh, the issue of promoting people so quickly. Mm -hmm. I think that... um, you know, Concho I, was coming from a good place and a place that made sense because for people that don't know, in um, in Japanese martial arts, you know, a lot of times there's time requirements. And they say, okay, from the day you get this belt, you have to train, you know, for three years and then you get this belt. And um, and Concho, I think, made a correct uh, decision that, that that's probably not fair to everybody. You know, uh, I if I train three days a week, then I'll have X amount of classes by the end of the year. If you train seven days a week, you'll literally have trained you know, twice as many classes. You'll be, in theory, twice as good. But why do we both have to wait three years if you're, if you're training three years' worth of time in one year? And, uh, and I think that's a fair point. But I think the problem is, is that um, you know, when you allow people to get promoted quickly, they want to keep getting promoted quickly. Mm-hmm. And eventually, like you mentioned there's no more promotions left. And if I am a school owner or if I own the system, you know, every time you get promoted, there's a fee that you pay. And that fee actually increases with each belt. So if I have all these students and and completely good intentioned, I was trying to allow them to get promoted and keep getting promoted, well, I've been gaining, you know, a lot of income. And I think that's fair. That's, that's commerce. That's how it should work. But then suddenly, if there's no more ranks left to give away. It's like I've lost a, a ton of income. And that's when we start making up new promotions and saying, oh, well, this promotion that it used to only be for this group of people, now everyone can do it. And right. that's why I I never called it a belt factory. I, ca- I called it a belt machine. Right, yeah. Because once the machine starts humming, it's hard to turn it off. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I got promoted once a year, every year like clockwork. And um, and then suddenly I became the highest rank I could achieve, which was seventh degree uh, black belt. And then suddenly I'm I'm kind of like in a in a financial sense I become worthless because I'm not going to test anymore. I'm not going to get promoted. I don't want to open up an own school my own school. Um, so then of course the focus will shift on a new student who is you know going to in the future pay huge amounts of money to to get promoted and go through the system and. Um, was it malicious? I don't think so, but I also think that uh, once it got really humming around 2012, 2013, it couldn't stop um, because 
whoever was making that money was spending it and they needed they needed it to con- continue coming in right well i mean i guess you know like with our our previous conversation just about the belt system in general i i don't know it's you know if you don't have a way of testing your your actual skills if you're not doing you know either a full contact sparring like you would do probably in, in your brazilian jiu-jitsu or what you know the kind of push hands that we do uh in tai chi where you're you know you're just constantly being tested and and the belt thing i don't know the belt thing can really throw it off and i you know my my attitude about my training has always been and my teacher is constantly like my teacher will set me up in a in a qigong pose or in a a meditation pose or he'll teach me you know a new part of the form or you know he'll take a little tiny piece of the tai chi form and he'll get me to stand in it and he'll correct my posture and then he'll say you know all right stand there for a half an hour or an hour (laughs) and then he'll laugh and he'll say like okay you got to do this every day for the next 10 years and then you might be able to start figuring out you know how to how to use this posture for self-defense and it's you know some of it's a joke but i mean the 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 real thing about it is that it just takes a long time to really start to embody these techniques to be able to make them work in a real live action situation and uh and so it was a, another red flag for me anyway when i entered the sebucon system and they really had this thing about speed of learning like it was you know, you you get in there, and if you were if you were studying for your black belt or your second degree black belt or whatever your third degree black belt, and you were getting close to the to that year point where you were allowed to get your next black belt, the the uh, uh, the guys that were higher than you would start to be like, "Are you ready for your test? Are you taking mm, yeah. your pretest? Well, you've got to increase. Your date? Yeah, yeah, you've got to increase your speed of learning to get the next belt. I mean, it was the exact opposite of my Tai Chi training, which is literally like it's probably going to take you years. You know, you need to be patient, and it's going to take a long time to really start to embody these things. Um, yeah, I uh, I think. You know, this is another thing where um, maybe young people are a little taken advantage of because from my perspective, I had never done any other martial art. And I think that when you have no martial arts background, you're like the the golden student. That's the kind of student that instructors want because you're not, you know, you haven't been taught anything bad or bad habits or anything. So with me, like, I didn't realize what was normal. Um, so pain for, yeah. you know, pain progressively more for every belt, like that seemed normal to me. And getting promoted that quickly and having a culture around promotion seemed normal. And then I did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And um, I've never, you know, I haven't paid for any belt. Um, you know, I just pay my kind of flat monthly fee. And um, and belt is, you know, it's almost kind of a joke to us. Because, like I said, um, it's not always the, you know, it's a general indicator of skill. But it's it's far from, from foolproof, you know. I mean, right. Um, there's there's kids that are training you know every single night and they're brand new blue belts and they're i'm scared of them i'm running from them right Um, (laughs) and you know there's there's some uh belts that are higher than me that like for whatever reason i got their number and i I feel like i can beat them pretty consistently um and you know when i do get promoted it's like the most unceremonious thing it's like my coach comes up to me and slaps a piece of tape on my belt And, uh, you know, one day he'll give me the next belt and that'll be a little bit more of a big thing where he'll bring me in front of class. But, um, but it's not this huge, you know, euphoric emotional payoff that, that we had in Sebucon, which I think had a lot of positives to it. I think it's great that we give every student recognition and Sebucon was really good at that. 
but it was also, you know, it was such a big emotional payoff for the people that got promoted in Sabucon that they wanted the next one. Yeah. And it, it was, you know, and they would never admit this and I would never admit it because of course, if you would ask me when I was in Sabucon, I would have said, whoa, it's not, rank doesn't matter at all. It's not about the belt. We don't care about the belt. That's the last thing we care about. But, right. you know, let's be honest, like that was the purpose for, that was the progression system. And really, we as soon as that demo was over where we got promoted, we were thinking about that next one next year. And we put all of our energy into it and um, maybe a little bit less energy into the actual training that we should have been. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't know. You know, again, there were some red flags. And I came in when I got into it. I tell you, when I got into it, I actually thought it would be good for my kids um, I had two kids and my son was about nine or 10 years old when, when he started doing it. And I was, um, you know, I was, it was like, it was like a nice, I, because I'd already done a fair amount of martial arts in my life. I kind of saw it as a, a good way to learn about applying techniques and, and learn a little bit about the, the elemental system and some of the other things. Um, but I did have some problems with it even in initially because of the lack of that that comparative like that the lack of of being able to compare your actual your abilities with each other. You know, there was only the belt thing and pushing the belts, uh, pushing the belts really quickly. It was just again, I you know, I just have this my spider sense got tingling because of the red flags were happening. What were your and I also I you know the other thing I totally agree with you about the the new martial arts student you know that was the thing I'd had a lot uh, of previous experience when I walked into those dojos, um, but I can you know when you don't know what you're doing when you've never done anything else before then you don't know you know you just don't know what to watch out for, and so um, you know I, I saw I I felt like I mean I just started to feel uncomfortable after a while I, I kind of wanted to tell you this story actually I got about to a place right when I decided that I couldn't go anymore actually I uh, I was practicing for my second degree black belts and I was learning the techniques and I went to a seminar for the for the second degree black belt which is actually at the Santa Cruz dojo I think and there were a lot of people there. There were about there were probably 30, 30 people or so, maybe more, that were training, and they were all working on their second degree black belts. And I just walked in there, and I, I actually started to like, I just kind of felt sorry for everybody, like I because I you know the training that I'd had. This is kind of interesting. I mean, the first thing you learn when you do Tai Chi is what we call standing meditation, which is about how to hold your form. So we're doing a lot like you stand and you hold your form and you hold your hands and you round your shoulders and you learn how to hold your body in a certain form. And even initially, I didn't really know, you know, other than like to meditate and calm down and become more sensitive what it was for. But the funny thing is, when I started doing Sabukan, I was like, oh, you know, this is defense against joint locks. Like I, you know, I, I know how to open my wrist joint. I know how to relax my shoulders. I know how to be flexible in the face of this kind of, of attack, you know, this kind of technique. Um, and I just never felt like, I, I mean, I, you know, I didn't want to be arrogant about it or I didn't say anything, but I was always skeptical of the guy's ability to really put you in, into a joint lock. And it just looked like one of the things that you, you talk about your friend Casey in the book and I think the two of you were having doubts at about the same time. And you talk about how it seemed like the whole thing that was going down was like a beauty pageant. And I sort of thought about it almost like a dance. Like these people are learning a dance. You, you know, one person leads and the other person follows, but they've, they're, they're memorizing a dance. And it's just, you know, real, real fighting is, 
brutal. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not a dance. You're going after each other. And, um, I, it was just, it was so interesting to be in that situation where I almost felt like I just felt uncomfortable, you know, like I couldn't be part of this. And then, you know, I guess that's where you talk about the true believers. I mean, some people just really went deep into it and did not want to have those doubts. It was almost like you weren't allowed to bring up those doubts in your mind. Why don't you discuss, you said that you had, in the book, you mentioned you had a friend that knew Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and every once in a while he would come b back into town, he'd been training in, in BJJ, and you guys would like go out and just kind of have a full full on spar to see where you were at, and he would just kick your butt, you know, <laughs> and you were, that was when the light bulb kind of starts to go off, like, man... You know, maybe it's not all technique. Maybe there's something else to this. So, you know, will you describe... I? It's just so interesting. It's almost hard to talk about it in real terms, but there seems to be like... You know, I think when you're training in martial arts or even any real spirit path, you there's got to be... You've got to be grounded in reality. You know, it can't be just all in your mind or all memorizing this or that. You know, you've got to be able to compare yourself to other people walking the path in a, in a realistic kind of way. So... Do you want to talk about your feelings, especially in relationship to, you know, sparring with this other guy that you knew? Yeah, uh, this gets into one of the most important parts of, I think, the martial arts journey is um, you need to get your ass kicked every now and then. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of my um, thinkings about grappling and, and ground fighting in general uh, prior to this experience had been very hypothetical and... Um, you know, I tend to intellectualize things and I think a lot about things and maybe it's easier for me to kind of rationalize or explain away things. So, you know, I, I thought that that ground fighting was, um, you know, was was just not necessary and probably not a smart idea. Uh, and I had mm -hmm. a buddy, Richard, that um, he did Hapkido for a long time and we had trained before that. Hapkido is very similar to uh, Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, it's Korean Jiu-Jitsu. And uh, we would always train, and we were doing enough of the same stuff that we could train together. And, and you know, we were attacking each other in the, the right way. And um, But he knew some kind of interesting um, stuff that he learned at Keto that I didn't know and vice versa. And so that was our relationship. We were about, like, at parity as far as our, our, our level of knowledge. And then he moved away, and he went and lived in Los Angeles and he came back. Um, I had gotten my, I think I was a second degree black belt. And um, and I was like, I'm going to impress this guy with all the, all the new stuff I'm learning. I'm learning mm -hmm. weapons now, and I can do this and this and that. And uh, we got back together, and uh, he's like, well, I, I started doing some Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I was like, oh, cool. How long have you been doing that? He's like, oh, like three months or something like that. And I was like, cool. Um, so we went out to this like little courtyard in um, Fort Ord. And, uh, and we started training and it started out normal. And then somehow in a scuffle, you know, when you're training with buds, like it gets a little bit more competitive and, and it starts control sure. and then it ends up, you know, you're, you're rolling around and man, he threw me down and it was basically game over. Like he threw me down with like a judo toss. And then, um, I remember he got me in like mount and side control and, um, and he just held me down for like five minutes and there was just nothing I could do to, to get this guy off me. He didn't even tap me or submit me. He just held me down. Yeah. And, um, and in five minutes you can basically try every technique that, you know, <laughs> you know, like it was enough time that 
it, it wasn't that I could tell myself, oh, if I just had a little bit more time, it was like, no, my the toolbox was empty. And, and I was also surprised at how tired I got, how quickly, you know, I, I never really seriously thought about cardio as much. And, um, you know, I remember driving home and, and really thinking about it. And it wasn't like, it just kind of planted a seed, you know, I wasn't, it didn't totally turn my world upside down. Mm-hmm. But I remember that, you know, I, I went back and I asked my instructors and I said, hey, this thing happened to me. Um, you know, what do you think? What, you know, what was I doing and stuff? And they're, they kind of explained it away, but their explanations didn't satisfy me. Um, and then, you know, I realized like there's a there's there's something to this stuff, and I need to train a little bit. Like there's more to, that I can learn. And uh, I talk about this in the book. I spent kind of the next year like training specifically in ground fighting um, to what extent I could within uh, Sabukan, and I was like watching UFC stuff and. And I was trying to get the pieces, but I wasn't actually training at like a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school. So I spent, you know, I don't know, six months to a year kind of trying to develop that part. And then he came back to town. And I was like, all right, round two, I'm I'm ready, man. I've been training. I, I, I know what an arm bar is. I watch UFC. And, uh, man, the exact same thing happened again. Yeah. I mean, it was – and. And that was the the moment where I was like, you know, there's something out there that I need to learn, and I just can't learn it from the people I'm with now. And that kind of started the path. Yeah. And I should say that I've really become convinced that um, getting getting physically beaten thoroughly sometimes is the answer. And <laughs> you know, nowadays, um, you know, I'm 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 a man now, so like I don't argue with people in general. If people if people don't want to believe, you know, whatever, then have have a great life. Right. But when people try to argue intellectually to me about martial arts and and try to try to explain to me why you know why um, my my grappling doesn't work and stuff, I always say, well, we can find out. Yeah. Like let's go on the mat. <laughs> and I really think that you know if they're willing to do that, and if I really can uh, just just demolish them, like. In the long run, that's gonna be that's gonna really help them because they won't be able to explain that away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my teacher uh, is actually says exactly the same thing. Like, you don't learn except for by failing, and it's more important to fail. I mean, and over and over again. Like when we do push hands, like it's comical when I when I do push hands with him. He used to he'll set up a, a mattress behind me, <laughs> and he'll just throw me into the mattress like all day long, and I'll try to get into his center. My teacher has, <laughs> I mean, this. I'll just say this one story because it's hilarious. He'll be like, you know, yeah. get try to get inside me and push me over as much as you can. We don't usually, you know, we're not throwing fists at each other because we don't really train that way and we don't want to hurt each other. But I will try to, you know, I'll try my damnedest to push him down. And he'll stand on one leg and he'll joke with me while he throws me into the mattress while he's standing on one leg, you, you know, just to like <laughs> show me that like, like I need to lose over and over and over again if I want to be able to be at the same level that he is eventually. And the only way that I'm going to learn it is is to lose over and over again. And it's this, I you know, the only way I can describe it now is this journey of humility. Um, and if you don't get that, if you're not getting that from your martial arts training, then I think you're not really walking the path. I mean, I, I, I think it's what you said about, you know, needing to get beat to learn how to go forward is so important. It's just, it really is because 
If you're not getting beat and then learning from your mistakes, then it's all just in your head. Like you're taught, you said, um, you know, people try to argue intellectually. Well, what good is that? You know, what does that mean in an actual conflict situation? I mean, mm-hmm. what you're thinking in your head is just delusion, you know? <laughs> right. And, and, and we live in a world now where um, the internet has really changed the game. Um, if you're an evidence-based guy, mm-hmm. which uh, which I am, and, and that is is that you know traditional martial arts um, they really had a stranglehold on on reality and the truth for a long long time. Um, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, that um, you just kind of had to believe your instructor, and you weren't in a position to to argue with them. And you didn't really have, it was harder to get alternative information, you know. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, you know, you can, I mean, we can go on YouTube right now and we can find a thousand real fights that were captured on camera between real people that, you know, were really trying to hurt each other. Yeah. And, like, we can get a very realistic picture of, like, oh, okay, that's that's what fighting looks like. And if it doesn't look like what, you know, what you're doing and, and that's, if that's your goal is to, practice martial arts for fighting because I should recognize there's a lot of people that don't do that and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's far easier now for a, a young kid to be like, well, this doesn't look like the fight I saw on YouTube. And it might sound kind of silly to say that, but there's some truth in that. Yeah. Um, and it's harder for, for you know, people to, to cover that up now. And I, I take some, some comfort in that saying, you know, eventually... The internet always wins, man. Right. <laughs> people, will, people will start getting a realistic view of, of you know, a fighting art. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, you know, another kind of red flag for me when it came to Sabacon was the jargon. And you mentioned uh, that eventually, I kind of said a little bit in the, uh, in the intro, that eventually people outside the system could barely even understand what people inside the system were talking about because they'd almost mm-hmm. developed their own language around this uh, this kind of self-development aspect to it. Um, you know, how did that happen? How did you find yourself, you know, falling into that? And what, what were your feelings about all that? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. And, and you, I'm sure you experienced some of that too, Doug. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, you've read like George Orwell? Yeah, yeah. So it reminds me a lot of Orwell was big on that was that the language matters and that if you can right. control the language then you know you can control the way people think um, and the language is another great example of something that I don't think was intentional at all um, I think that you know uh, Concho had a lot of kind of buzzwords and and phrases that he liked to kind of you know invent on the fly and um, and and he had good meaning with that. I mean, he would talk about, you know, like the five steps to become successful or whatever, you know, have a dream and, and make a plan and face your fears. And and all of those in isolation were good. Like it was good for me to, uh, to have the five steps and to have, you know, uh, for people that don't know, like we had a ton of, you know, concepts that we, we memorized word for word. We had sayings and mottos and slogans that we memorized word for word. And in isolation, all of them were good and all of them you know, kind of taught a lesson about, um, you know, committing to things and being clear on what you want and, and uh, you know, the five steps to be successful and all that. But when you took them all together and you were using all of them all the time, you started realizing like, wow, we've, we have a really dense system of jargon and, and buzzwords 
and we were using them amongst each other a lot, basically to try to impress each other and being like, oh, it was almost like a game that we would play, like who can use more concepts mm-hmm. in a sentence and, and who can, you know, switch out this word with one of the Seibukan words, you know. Like we would never say, oh, I, I really want this. We'd say, well, my intention is to is to manifest this or something like that. And um, and it got a little weird, man. And and you were there. I mean, you you saw that. I yeah. remember going to those those Sebukon, uh parties. You know, we had these huge parties that were um, after promotions and stuff. And I remember uh, bringing my wife, and and she at one point said, "I I don't know what the hell these people are talking about. <sighs> right? Like, I, I can't talk with them. I can't relate to them." If I don't do Sebukan, like they don't know what to talk to me about, and and they're using these words, and she would ask me like, "What does this mean? What? Why was he saying that?" And I was like, "Oh well, you know, he was saying Kaishi waza. It's like a reversal, and that was basically his way of saying like you should think about changing your mind or whatever." Yeah. And um, and I saw you know people like my wife and other spouses and and boyfriends and girlfriends, you know, we sort of push them away with this wall of jargon, which it's like, hey, if you want to hang out with us, one, you probably should do our martial art um, and two you know you need to know the language I mean and then on top of that we're speaking Japanese a lot um, we're right. using a lot of Japanese vocabulary um, again it's this sort of one-upsmanship game to, to prove that you know we knew the concepts in the system and over time it, it un- unintentionally became a vehicle for us to isolate ourselves from the real world um, and I think that could be a little dangerous one of the things that that cults do, uh, and again, I, I did not say Seibukan was a cult, um, and I don't think it is, but one of the things that walks the line is cults tend to try to isolate you from people that are outside of the group, right? Yeah. And I, I absolutely feel like we were doing that, um, that we were, I talked to you about this earlier, we were turning away from careers that that were outside of Seibukan. You know, I saw marriages end. I mean, I, I really saw marriages get destroyed wow. because of Sebukan and I saw relationships get destroyed because hey you know my girlfriend she just doesn't understand me and 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 how dedicated I am to the martial art right and I was like nah maybe she wants you to stay home a couple nights a week because <laughs> yeah. you know you have a family and and isn't that normal you know and I would say that and everyone would kind of like shut me down like no don't listen to Louie you know Louis's not dedicated to Sabacon. He has a wife and a, right. and he has a job, you know. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I started feeling like I was kind of being ostracized or or looked at as like dangerous because I was telling people that maybe they should take the time to invest in their family and in in their you know in their jobs or in their hobbies. You know, that's another thing about Sabacon is it became hard to have another hobby. Yeah. If you played, I remember, you know, we had this one guy, he was a musician, and it was like, hey, you should write a song about Sepacon. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I had this experience, and this was probably when I really said goodbye to the whole thing, you know, in my heart completely. I had a, a close friend that had gotten involved enough that I had started talking to some some other friends and neighbors in the community about how I, I started to think that it might be an issue, you know. Um, because like you're saying, like Sepacon, it's not... Charles Manson, it's not some, I mean, you you don't even really want to use the word cult, and I don't know where that fine line happens, but I do know that when your personal relationships, like you're talking about marriages breaking up, well, Mm. that's kind of like, okay, you know, something is going on that's pretty serious in in the personal lives of the people that have gotten involved in this, and they're not listening to their, 
you know, they're old friends that aren't involved in the group and they're not listening to their family anymore. And they're, you know, then the, you know, that's when you got to, it's just like, I just call them red flags. Like you got to start kind of feeling like maybe this isn't really the healthy way to go. And uh, eventually one of the guys from the Sabicon group here in Mendocino actually came to talk to me about it. And he talked to me for probably about 20 minutes straight in the language of the jargon. I mean, it was all the jargon about, I, I can't, I, I wish I could, I mean, I almost wish I had had it recorded so I could kind of listen to it and be like, wow, you know, talking about how I needed to find the third point and how I needed to re, you know, real, find the middle oh, the way. Third point, I forgot all about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and I suddenly I realized like, this guy's not listening to me at all. You know, I, I have real feelings about my friend that's gotten involved here. And at the very least, he should be like acknowledging my feelings about it. And instead, I suddenly I realized it was like this passive aggressive way for for this person to just impose themselves on me. You know, he wasn't actually I mean, he wasn't actually even doing what he was telling me to do. He was just trying to use this jargon to convince me that everything was okay and that I just needed to shut the hell up, you know? Hmm. And I was like, but everything's not okay because I don't feel good about this. You know, I don't feel good about where my friends have ended up when they got involved in this. And it, it just didn't, that didn't affect, my feelings didn't affect him at all. And the jargon was this tool that he used to try to convince me that I was wrong, you know? <laughs> and it was just like... I'm not buying it, brother. I mean, you know, I just was like, finally, I just kind of said, you know, I, I just hope my friend, you know, can, can get it together. I don't really care about Sabucon anymore, you know, because, <laughs> because it was a little over the top. Yeah, that's exactly the same experience I had the last night I talked to uh, my teacher, Concho. Um, it was at a wedding and, um, you know, there were some, you know, towards the tail end, there were some some big scandals that came out and I think that martial arts have a have a long tradition of power relationships and power dynamics that can be a little bit harmful um, and I think that there were some there were some bad actors in the art that were really um, you know abusing uh, people and abusing some women in the art and uh, mm. it's something that caused a lot of people to leave and it caused me to leave too but I never really had talked to uh, to Concho about it um, and, and I, you know, I knew that he was going to be at this wedding with me and I said, well, this is, this is the opportunity, you know? Um, and it wasn't, you know, it was, it was one of the students in the art that was, you know, suddenly being accused, um, by a couple people of, of doing some, some really bad stuff, some stuff worth getting upset about. Um, and, you know, I remember sitting down with, with Concho and, and being really point blank and said, Hey, you know, you, you got to kick this guy out, man. You know, this is this is bad news, and and you know, he he played the whole well. No one really knows what happened, and it's it's you know, it's his word versus their word. And in that sense, he was right. I mean, I I don't I don't actually know what happened, but I know what I believe because I I knew these people, you know. And I said, okay, I I'm I'm some of these people are more believable than others, you know. Um, and I remember trying to talk to him. And he was the same way, man. He was, he was so stuck in in the Sebukan jargon and philosophy that I I really I didn't even know what he was saying. And I, I I asked him to stop. I said, "Could you not talk like that?" 
Yeah. Because I, I don't know what you're saying, and it's hard to communicate with you when we're, you're using this language and I'm trying to use, you know, regular person speak. <laughs> right. Um, but I realized that, you know, I it was unrealistic of me to expect that of him um, because, uh, you know, he's he's an old man. Like, he's not going to change. Um, he created this whole thing, and it's benefited him tremendously, and he can't just switch it off at this point, you know. Um, so I had to be okay and be like, you know, I'm not going to, like, change his mind or convince him of anything. I just need to say my piece and then walk away. Um, and that felt like the right thing to do, and it felt like I was going to be doing right by some of these people that have been harmed. Yeah, I mean, what a what an interesting situation, and it did uh, eventually seem to result in basically some people abusing their power. Um, you know, my my martial arts teachers talk about, especially when it, I mean, the martial arts have a tendency to be very um, ha- have that machismo in it, and it's uh, it's a delicate balance, especially for women. Um, to try to be training in martial arts in the first place, but then to have to deal uh, with that kind of behavior from you know people at and the in the upper levels of the hierarchy and things like that. I mean, it's it's just a very challenging. I don't know. It's a very challenging part of the whole process and walking the whole path. I mean, my teacher has been training in various martial arts since the early seventies, and and uh, you know he just tells me. When I tell him some stories about it, you know, he tells me I've seen all kinds of stuff going on in the martial arts. You know, it really is. It really it will bring out the good and the bad. And, and you just have to be able to discern uh, and hopefully find yourself training with people that are just really more down to earth. And one of the things I wanted you to ask real quick here to explain to people, too, is about the titles. You've been calling Julio Toribio is the man that created Sebukan and you still, you know, you call him Concho. But also, and you mentioned this in the book, and you said, I think, a little bit, like, people who are, I think, 5th, 6th, 7th degree are called Shihan, and, uh, and then you're having, having these, which kind of basically just means senior student, but then the people in the group started to, you know, even socially call, call each other by these names. It got to be something that was happening outside of the dojo. I think you brought mm-hmm. this up in the book as another kind of red flag when people are really... Yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of part of the jargon, but really, you know, starting to call themselves by these various different titles instead of just, you know, like you're talking about, like normal people speak, like just right. having relationships with somebody that, you know, you train with. But I mean, hey, you know. <laughs> yeah, that was an important step is when our, you know, you know, the martial arts dojo is, is an alternate world, you know, and I, I, I think that. You know, I walk in the school and I got I got my jacket and my wallet, you know, and my phone. And uh, when I go in the changing room, I take all that off, and it's it's a symbolic shedding as well as a a, a physical one, mm-hmm. because you're giving up your identity and you're swapping it out for your mat identity, which is, hey, when I'm on the mat, I'm a black belt, and you know, you I have a title, and that title is Shihan or or Hanshi or Renshi or whatever. We had tons and tons of titles. Um, and normally when the class is over, you go back into the changing room and you grab your wallet with your credit cards and, and then you're Dr. So-and-so or, you know, or you're just a guy. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that makes martial arts special is we set aside who we are for two hours, you know, a couple nights a week and then we're this other person and then we go back and we have to go back in the real world. But what happened with us was I feel like the mat world started following us back into the real world where, you know, when I started training, um, if I had an instructor 
and uh, you know his name was was Jim, and when we were on the mat, he was Sensei, or he was whatever his title was. But when we were off the mat, he was Jim. And yeah, it might feel a little bit weird if I idolize him to call him Jim, but I would still do that. Um, but you know, I remember really clearly when uh, these these two students, and they were younger students, uh, we left the dojo one night together, and I locked the door, and they said, "Okay, good night, Shihan." And I said, uh, oh, you can just call me Louie. And they, they looked at me really serious, and they're like, no, you're Shihan. <laughs> and, and I was like, okay. And I didn't think much of it. Um, but then, you know, before you know it, everyone's calling each other their titles uh, outside the dojo. And then I'm at CVS, you know, with, with Sarah trying to get a bottle of wine, and people are, like, bowing to me, you know, in the aisle and being like, oh, Shihan, good evening. Good to see you and stuff. <laughs> Right. And at the time, you know, I'm 25, so, you know, Sarah's my girlfriend. I'm looking, I'm like, you see that? I'm Shihan, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and and it feels kind of kind of cool, you know? But but then after a while, you're like, eh, I don't know if this is if this is healthy, man. Like, you know, it, on the mat, if, if you know, a, a sensei is coming, like, yeah, maybe you get out of the way and you give a little bow to them. But then it became like, oh, sensei, right in the front seat. You know, or, or sensei, go in the door first when we're doing something totally not martial arts related. Yeah. And um, yeah, that can get that can get a little harmful, man. Yeah, pretty, pretty strange. Um, we're, we're looking at about an hour. I'm happy to go for a few more minutes. I guess just kind of kind of time to think about wrapping it up. Um, sure. Uh, one thing that I did want to touch on before we go is. This idea that Sabagun had, because, God, I mean, I just can't even believe how, what a similar experience you had and the way you describe it in the book as to what I had. And the the first, one of the things, you know, like, because I showed up and I was like, oh, I've, you know, I've done Tai Chi, uh, you know, for a number of years now. And the first response that everybody gave me was, oh, that's great. You know, we totally, we totally believe in cross training and we like to incorporate all these different martial arts into this mm -hmm. style and uh and then eventually you know it became like well because Concho also or you know julio Toribio, like it's funny i want to i want to start calling him Concho still um but uh he uh he had other martial arts that he had studied in japan so he so you you know if you wanted to study ninjutsu from him or you wanted to study the the sword form from him then you were welcome to cross train in those arts, but it did from the very beginning. And I know that then you, when you started getting more into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, it was the same. Like when you're really going outside of Concho's world to try to incorporate different styles, uh, then suddenly you're getting a different vibe from these people that you're not, you know, it's not really accepted to have outside ideas. Uh, despite the fact that they really tried to build themselves as this, as this group that was so open-minded. Totally. Um, and before I say that, I should say with the Concho thing, um, I really should call him uh, Julio and, and other right. people do uh, because, you know, I get that that was a title of respect that we kind of bestowed. And, and if you don't have that respect anymore, then you wouldn't use that. Um, and uh, the main reason, just so people know that I still call him Concho, is just because that's what I've always called him. And I just think of it as his name. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I should also say, like, I don't, I don't hate the guy, um, and I still have a level of respect for him, and I think that's fair to say, um, because he was, uh, he was a leader and a spiritual leader, and it's a, it's a high wire act, man, mm -hmm. um, 
and he created something from nothing. And I think that no matter what, like he should have some credit for that. And I think it, it got out of control and I think it, it is out of control still. Um, and I think that, you know, he might have some stuff to answer for one of these days, but I still recognize that, you know, he took the risks and he experienced the pitfalls. Um, so, uh, I guess I feel like I should say that. Um, and just, I call him Concho cause it's just too much work to, to like call him Julio. I just, right. just rolls <laughs> off the tongue at this point. Sure. Um, okay. But the, um, the cross training thing is interesting, man. And, and I think this happens in all martial arts in that, um, I, and I remember just a couple nights, uh, a couple of weeks back I was training, um, and a guy came in and he had this, he, he obviously had done MMA or something. And, um, and I could tell like the, uh, the, the instructors felt like a little bit threatened by him and they were trying to kind of fix him and, and be like, yeah, it's great that you did that. We love that you did MMA, but, um, but you know, this is how we do it and don't do it the way that you did it. Um, right. and it wasn't at, uh, the school that I train at in Monterey. Um, that school were, were like completely open and we legitimately would let that guy come in and as a white belt, just whoop on all of us because, uh, you know, he had an MMA background or whatever. But the point is, is that I, I think that happens in a lot of places, but yeah, in Sabukon, um, you know, we always talked about cross training and how good it was to cross train. Um, but in my opinion, it just wasn't true. Like our definition of cross training was changing uniforms and training under Concho in one of the other martial arts that he had done. Mm -hmm. uh, and to me, like that's not cross training because most of the elements of the Sabukon uh, puzzle are still there, right? Same teacher, you're in the same school with the same other students training, but you've changed uniforms and you're doing different techniques. Um, but to me, cross-training is being exposed to a different worldview. Uh, and and uh, it's important that maybe it be a contradictory worldview because if you have two teachers that you respect and they're telling you different things, well, suddenly you have to think for yourself and make a decision of what's best for you and try to be diplomatic between the two of them. Um, and when I started doing, you know, real cross training, um, it was it was a big turning point because I felt like, um, you know, people were really polite to me and, and they kind of like feigned interest. And some of them were genuinely interested. But, you know, for the most part, they did not like that I was doing uh, uh, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, mm -hmm. And they didn't want anything to do with it. And... Um, I was actually allowed to, uh, to teach a, a, a small like class there, um, for, uh, you know, like on a Saturday and, and, um, Concho, uh, actually I'll give him a lot of credit for this. Like he, he took some convincing, but, um, he let me teach it. Um, and I didn't even really teach it. It was a study group. I mean, I was still a white belt back then, but you know, I was, I was doing my best to, to learn and I was, uh, learning from, from Torrance remotely. Uh, Torrance is where the Gracie Academy is. So yeah, I think I gave Concho credit and I should give him credit for letting me have that class. But at the same time, you know, no one showed up. And, uh, right. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know this for sure, but I feel like it was one of those things like, don't go to Louis's class, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe it was never said, but I think the students knew that Louis was doing one thing and you should be really careful if you do it with them because, uh, you know, you don't want to interfere with your growth in Sebucon or whatever. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I always felt kind of the same way with my previous training when I would when I would just try to bring up this or that or this is how you know we would think about this particular move with from my point of view of my Tai Chi training was just that it it just wasn't very socially acceptable. You know, I mean, I could say it and everybody would kind of pretend like you know they they were open minded to uh, to the cross training thing, but. Um, you know, eventually I wasn't really talking about my Tai Chi training very much, that's for sure, because it just wasn't something that people were going to be able to try to incorporate. And when you think about it, no one's going to say that they don't like cross-training, right? Yeah. Like, when, <laughs> right. Now when when students tell me, like, uh, you know, when other people are like, oh, well, we don't care about the belts, you know, or whatever, I, I always say, like, well, if they did, would they even tell you? Like, <laughs> yeah. like who's, who's going to come out and be like, we're against cross-training? So there's some stuff that you you know their word just isn't good enough you have to observe and and decide whether they mean what they say you know i was talking to my coach just two nights ago and i'm getting ready to move to southern california mm-hmm. and um and i had a really good conversation i said hey like um i'm going to be training at a at a different place but i'd like to keep going with you to get my next belt and then after that i'll i'll you know if i'm getting along good with the teacher down there i'd like to switch over and train her them and like he was a total sweetheart about it and he was like that's great i'm i'm super happy that you're staying with me and then afterward yeah be free you know and yeah and i was like man this is how it should be right yeah you know my teacher he really does i mean you know i i'm doing soft style stuff but they're like i just talked to him i hey i ran into this other tai chi teacher you know from from the neighboring city and I didn't even think twice about it. Actually, I was like, I was thinking about showing up for for his uh, push hands class just to kind of see what it's like. And my teacher comes back to me and he goes, "Yeah, they do Chen style over there. It'd be really good for you to check that out. You know, it's a different, little bit of a different take on what, what I usually do. And you know, if you got the time, then go stop by." <laughs> he right. didn't even, you know, he just it was just like didn't even think twice about it. Like, and I. I mean, I just, I actually, it just makes me want to take from my teacher, you know, more because he really is so laid back and so mellow about it. I mean, it's, you know, it's my path. He totally has respect for for it. And if I want what he has to offer, then he'll keep teaching me, you know? Um, and I, I don't know, you know, these are, I, I, it took me, it did take me a long time of doing martial arts before I ended up with this guy. And, uh, I feel really fortunate that I found what I found and, um, you know, to each their own, and everybody's at a different place on their path, and I and I hope that everyone can be as fortunate as I am. And it sounds like, you know, you're you're making your way along the path too, and you're finding uh, you know, finding a really good lineage to to work out with and and make it happen for you. So I'm uh, really happy to hear about that. And I'll say in closing, because um, you know, I don't want people to misinterpret um. You know, I, I don't want people to take from uh, – f- well, if you read the book, you won't because I think I explain it better. But I don't want people to take if you just hear this uh, interview that I'm saying that you shouldn't study anything besides, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or, or a hard martial art. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, people that study hard martial arts like mine, they probably could learn a lot from studying something like yours, like Tai Chi. Yeah. Like it's – there could be more of a balance and I think that – you know, if you're doing something like uh, Aikido or something like, you know, Bagua or Kung Fu, like, there's a place for those martial arts. And I think there's a place for uh, an art like Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu, um, you know, if it had a different, you know, kind of power structure and, you know, there could be some changes. But mm-hmm. but I still think at its core, 
it's a good thing and it, it has the potential to do good. Um, but where I would, you know, ask students to ask themselves is, you know, what are you giving to this art and are you receiving something that is equally valuable? Um, you know, how much time are you giving? How much money are you giving? Yeah. And is it helping you in your life or are you just helping it? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, my experience at this point, after having studied martial arts as long as I have, is actually that, you know, I have utmost respect actually for, for hard styles and for soft styles. I think that when when people start getting trapped in the middle um, and trying to do a little bit of both, I don't know. I mean, I know that to be really effective at, at my style at, of Tai Chi, you have to be really dedicated to learning how to be sensitive uh, and if you're not really like if you're not engaging in the type of meditation and the qigong and the other practices that we do to develop that sensitivity, you really just can't do it. I mean, you just get you can't. It, um, it takes a while to develop the kind of sensitivity that it takes to be able to do the techniques that we do uh, and to make them work. And at, frankly, a lot of people that do Tai Chi really haven't taken it to that level. It's it's a rare person. Uh, I'm fortunate to have a teacher who has managed to do that and he's, you know, continuing to work to impart that knowledge into me as difficult as challenging as that may be for him at times. Um, but, um, you know, and, and then with the hard styles, actually, I, I'm, I'd be the first one to say, you know, something like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is going to turn you into a better fighter faster uh, mm -hmm. than than what I do. It takes a long time to uh to really develop the sensitivity to be an effective tai chi fighter um which isn't to say that you don't gain a lot of benefits from the meditation and from you know the relaxation techniques initially um but if you want to use it for self-defense then you need to be patient because it does take some time and that's that's just my experience and i also um again just to reiterate i find that if you find styles that are too much in the middle you're not really doing enough of the sensitivity training to be able to do that. And then you're not getting, like you're talking about, I mean, sheer cardio, or you got to be kind of pipe hitting to be able to, you know, if you're going to be a boxer or you're doing Muay Thai or you're doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, you know, <laughs> you, you need to learn how to hit. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing people say, you know, what's something about fighting that people don't know? And, and the first thing I say is, uh, you don't realize how tired you get. Yeah. Uh, in, in seconds, you know, you get, uh, you can run, you know, you can be, uh, I've seen people that can run marathons come in and they, they do some sparring and they're exhausted in minutes, you know, because it's just a different kind of cardio and it's anaerobic versus aerobic and all that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a big, it can be a big wake up call. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, um, all right. So in closing, I did want, I wanted you to discuss for just a second though. And I know like, well, I remember I, cause I had such a similar, I swear I had such a similar experience as you there. You talk about, um, you know, being at a jujitsu party and there were a couple of hired bartenders and you overheard one of them. I think this is the only time you ever mentioned that it may be a cult or cult like or whatever in the book actually is the one bartender says to the other, you know, I think this is some kind of martial arts cult. And, uh, and I had a similar experience when I was down, uh, at the dojo in Monterey and I was not in my gi or anything. I was just walking past the dojo and I was walking in front of these, uh, this couple 
And the couple was like, what's going on in there? And the other guy was like, oh, I, you know, I hear it's some kind of martial arts cult, you know? And I was like, <laughs> oh, man, you know, like, because the thing is that, I, you know, I'm having these feelings about it. And so I, I just want to thank you for writing the book because it's important that people who do have those feelings that they get validated. You, you know, mm. you feel so isolated when you're participating in it and you're having these feelings that, no, you know, everybody else is so involved with it, you know? Um, and I think just, just for other people that may be involved in a similar situation, whether it's martial arts or whether it's anything, if you get involved in a group and you feel like it's getting taken a little bit too far, you know, trust your feelings about it as, is what I would say. And it's, and it is nice, uh, to be validated about it. Well, we talked a little bit before, but there's not a lot of literature on the fact that this does happen in martial arts. Um, and so I really appreciate that the book is getting out there so that people, if they're having a similar experience or having these doubts, you know, can feel a little bit of validation like, oh, OK, you know, those red flags that I was seeing, you know, other people see them, too. And it's not just me or it's you know, it is something real. So just in conclusion, you have said a little bit about feeling like maybe there was some deception going on or that, you know, martial arts or some of the, you know, the students were being deceived on a certain level. Uh, I think at the, the beginning of our conversation here, you talked about being victimized or, you know, there was victimization going on. So will you talk at least, you know, because I, I mean, it's just such a touchy subject and you don't want to cross the line. You don't want to call it a cult. You don't want to disrespect the people that are participating on this level and they're at this place in their path and they're working on it, you know, and that's great. Mm -hmm. You know, anybody that's training to me is like, keep it up, keep going, you know, keep training. Uh, it's, it's all good. Right. But, you know, but what were, you know, what, what was that, what was that, you know, light bulb that made you want to write the book or, you know, what were the, the concerns that you had about what, what, what negative aspects, what can happen to people if they get to go too far down that slippery slope, you know? Uh, I think a lot of it was exactly what you said. I, I After I left, I started to have, um, you know, I tried to keep in touch with people. There's just some amazing, you know, beautiful people in, in Cebucon um, and, and people that left, you know, with me. And so there was a period before I kind of left in protest, I had just kind of stopped training. And I hadn't hadn't officially, you know, announced that I was leaving or anything. I just was I was slowly making a breakaway, and it was intentional. And I figured, oh, I'll write off in the sunset, and maybe someday I'll come back and I'm 50 and I'll keep training. Um, and I had a lot of these feelings that you talked about, Doug. Um, mm -hmm. And then I started trying to keep in touch with people, and I go out and you know take people out for drinks or meet them for coffee. And you know, we started kind of hesitantly at first, um, saying, you know, do you ever think any of this was a little weird and and then it'd be like yeah i totally <laughs> did you know and and then we started really opening up wow and it was like you know i i was in you know during the later part i i was really conflicted inside and i thought i was alone and then suddenly i'm talking to other people and they're saying no like i had been going through the same thing or i had gone through the same thing one time this thing happened to me and and you know stuff i didn't know about and then i remember you know having a talk with someone um at a bar and uh and they said you know so and so like yeah i want to be careful here but you know they said some bad things happened to me in in Sabucon. yeah and um 
and I just felt awful and I felt felt really upset and I you know then it became more important to me to to say you know someone should like write this story and then as I was writing it I, you know I found out even more um and it's felt good because since I've published this book um every day man someone writes me it's like ev- almost every single day still wow I have someone emailing me or con- people I haven't heard from in years people like you I mean we didn't even really know each other I mean we had seen each other a couple times we had talked I remember we went to that Mexican place uh, at one of the Gashkus or something yeah um but a lot of a lot of people like that that are like thank you so much for writing that huh. like that was me like you were me and everyone's there's not a single person has been like hey I think you're overreacting like no one has said that wow and and everyone uh also like has been like I I know what you were talking about and um and that's the reason I'm not doing it anymore too uh like some of the stories I tell you know I obviously I I don't you know use a lot of names or anything in the book but everyone has been like yeah I know yeah I I know that story I know that person and um even if no one else reads it like I feel really complete and fulfilled I feel like I did right by the people I care about um but I think that there's so many more people in the wider martial arts world that this goes on, uh, this kind of stuff goes on. And I, I think that maybe this book could help someone outside of our little kind of circle in, in California too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's great. I mean, I imagine, and I'll just say, I think it took, you know, a certain amount of courage to come out and write this book. And, and I guess I would have assumed that you would have gotten, you know, a fair amount of blowback from, from the group. And, and how amazing is that, that, that you're actually getting that validation that most people are like, you know what, we really have these feelings about it too. And, you know, thank you for coming out and just saying, you know, what was what was going on? What was in the back of everybody's mind? It's so interesting that um, you know social groups can operate this way. Like the group almost becomes more important than the individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, even though all the individuals or many of the individuals could be having these doubts and these feelings, you know, they're still just participating in the group and they're you know co- covering it up and and pushing that stuff down and not really talking about it to the point where it's it's uncomfortable. Um, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, you just writing this out and validating some of my feelings, it, it made, it, it was healing for me, you know, talking about a healing process. I mean, it was, it, it's been, you know, kind of rough to see what some of my friends have gone through and, um, you know, and even my, some of my friends that have checked this out now, you know, it's been healing for them because they've been able to, to kind of see what, you know, what they got into, uh, as well and start to be able to move past it. So. Well, I, I want to at least uh, show it real quick. Yeah, yeah. I was about to do the same thing, The True Believers. Yeah, it's uh, available in paperback, and uh, I just released the Kindle version uh, a few days ago. So the paperback's uh, $14.99. I think the Kindle's like $5.99. Um, and it's available on Amazon. You can just search, uh, you know, Lewis Martin, The True Believers. All right, perfect. Is that? I don't think you have a website or anything else up yet. Actually, is there any other way to get in touch with you, or is that the best way to do it? Just check it out on Amazon. Just check it out on Amazon. If if you want to get in contact with me, um, there's a way. I think you can get in contact with the author. That's what you did, right? I think I actually found you at work, but um, oh no way! Yeah, 
I'm going to, you know, I need to update my about the author page to make it easier for people to contact me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm new at this. This is the first book I've ever published. So, uh, I, I will try to make myself available if anyone else wants to speak to me about it, but people have managed to find me so far. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. And uh, I definitely recommend it, especially if you're interested in martial arts at all. Uh, Louis Martin, the true believers. Um, and just to go ahead and remind everyone, if you like what you're hearing here on the shift, then please think about becoming a patron of the show. That's patreon.com backslash the shift. My Facebook page is the shift with Doug McKenty. You can uh, join the conversation on Twitter at D McKenty. My website is the and I am up on iTunes now. So if you want to catch it, uh, iTunes and uh, YouTube are the two best ways right now to watch it, but you can look up the shift with Doug McKenty on the iTunes podcast search engine and you will find it. You can listen to it there. So, uh, thank you so much, Louis Martin, for being on the show. And again, I really appreciate you writing this book. I think that you can help a lot of people out. And there hasn't been enough written about this kind of behavior in the martial arts. And uh, you'll you probably, I think, be able to, uh, you know, prevent a lot of people from, you know, having to experience too much of this kind of behavior before they, they can find their way to, uh, you know, maybe a better situation for themselves. Um, and the martial arts path, you know, it really does lead you, lead, lead you down a lot of different, into a lot of different places. Uh, and again, you know, I know you, you agree with me, it's all good and it's all part of your progress and you're, you're, you know, following your own path. But, uh, uh it's really nice when you're uh, in a school where you feel like, you know, you're getting everything that you can out of it. So thanks for having me on, man. I, I, I was really excited to come on. I was, like I said, I was giddy in the beginning and, um, but no, that was a really good talk, man. I, I really appreciate you for uh, for reaching out and, you know, being a, a positive force for change in all this, making the shift, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and thank, thank you too. Have a, have a great rest of your day. Take it easy. Okay, thanks, man.